Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older. Or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Is more common sense. More common sense. You got to use plain old common sense. Breaking down the world's nonsense. About how American common sense will see us through. With the common sense of Houston. I'm just pro common sense. For Houston, from Houston. Where is talking about common sense? This is the Jimmy Barrett Show. Brought to you by ViewIn.com. Now, here's Jimmy Barrett. All right, let's get to work on our Wednesday show here. Any y'all, any of y'all on TikTok? Hey, Will, I've got, Will's one of our uh, one of our new uh, producers. Have you ever? Do you go on TikTok? Are you a TikTok user? I am not, Jimmy. Okay, you're a smart man. That's good. That's one. That's one point for you. I'm guessing TikTok users are main, mainly kids, right? Mainly teens and 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 tweens and and younger than that probably. Um, you probably heard that TikTok has a lot of challenges. There's a challenge going on right now. I'm trying to figure this out. Under what circumstances anybody thinks that this is a good idea? I mean, TikTok, I guess, is kind of known for for having little challenges that are similar to what what you would call a scavenger hunt. Do you know what a scavenger hunt is? Scavenger hunt is is um, you get a list of items that you're supposed to collect, and some of them could be household items. Um, some of them could be unique or unusual items. Um, everybody gets the list, and then everybody runs out to try to find these things. And the first person who comes back with everything that's on the list is the winner. You know, that's what a scavenger hunt basically is. This, this is a sort of a verified version, or a, a modified, I guess, version, in my mind, of what a scavenger hunt is. And that is the idea that you go out and do something which is, first of all, against the law, second of all, against anybody's better judgment, I'd like to think, but kids are doing it. So what, are, what is this challenge? Basically, in a nutshell, this TikTok challenge is for, for school kids, I assume mainly high school, to go out to school and to steal things from school. 
and then take pictures of what they've stolen. Now, my wife is a uh, works at a public school. I won't name the school. Not fair to them or to her, <laughs> as far as that goes. But she's been telling me, yeah, oh, yeah. They, they've had to kind of set up a, a watch, especially around the restrooms. They've actually had, I don't know if this, this has happened at her school, but there's actually reports of fire alarms being taken. You know, not... Not the not the bell, but the actual you know the, the 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 actual panel that is on the wall at the school you know pole in case of fire. They're taking it down, stealing it. Uh, here's the question: What if there's an actual fire? What are we supposed to do then? They're taking down smoke alarms. They're they're taking plumbing fixtures. They're taking the paper towel racks that, that that are on the on the walls of the bathrooms. At least in a couple of cases, actual toilets have been stolen or attempted to be stolen. How do you steal a toilet? Do you know how much work is involved in taking out a toilet or a urinal? <laughs> I don't even know. I wouldn't even begin to know how to get rid of the urinal. First of all, you've got to find the water shut off. Then, of course, you have to have the plumbing tools. I'd like to think that you can't walk in your average high school with a bag full of plumber's tools without you know, somebody going, hmm, that doesn't look quite right to me. Why has that person got all these plumber tools? So you've got to cut off the water. You've got, you've, you've got to dismantle the pipes. You've got to remove the toilet from the stall. It's bolted down, so you're going to have to unloosen the bolts. It is full of, it is full of water which I would guess is going to slosh all the way out. How do you even do this? I guess you get the more points you get, depending upon the degree of difficulty. Toilet, I would think, be, being the number one degree of difficulty. You know, if you can actually, actually get a school toilet, I, I would assume to prove that this actually comes from a school, you'd have to have somebody witness this for you, take a picture of you in the process of taking the toilet out, and then take a picture of said toilet where, whenever you get it to where you're going to get it to. And then what do you do with it? What, what's amazing is, is that anybody could get away with this, or any student would think they could get away with it. You know, school officials have been tipped off to this kind of stuff going on. So they're starting to keep an eye out for this. It's one thing to be able to take a, a paper towel dispenser off the wall or a soap dispenser off the wall and stick it in a gym bag or something like that and, and walk out the door. You might get away with doing something like that. But I'm, I'm mystified how you get a toilet out of a school. But, but here's the part that I would really like to know. And that is, at what point... Did our kids, or some of our kids anyway, or we always had this sort of attitude about us when we're teenagers, you know, is there no longer a fear of being caught? I guess the greatest detractor for me doing anything really, truly stupid as a teenager was the sheer knowledge of knowing that if my old man ever found out what I did, there would be hell to pay. It wouldn't be worth it under any circumstances. Maybe there's no fear of parents anymore. Clearly, there's not a lot of fear of 
getting kicked out of school or serving detention or being expelled. And I'm guessing most of the kids that are doing this are probably, they're probably not your straight-A students, right? They're, they're probably not the students that are worried about whether or not they get caught. Oh, I get suspended? I can't come to school for two weeks? Yes! Exactly what I'd like. And I get the notoriety of stealing a toilet. It's, it's just sad to think that we have people who are more interested in playing a game on TikTok than they are of actually applying themselves as, as a student. Because that might be fun at 15 or 16 years of age, but by the time you're 26 and you've hopefully outgrown this type of childish stuff, what are you going to have to show for your educational experience other than the toilet you stole? Will you have, will you have a diploma? Will you have a degree, a useful degree? Will you have a job skill? Will you be making money? Or will you still be staying at home with mom and dad with an extra toilet? All right, back with more in a moment. We're going to talk to, you know, the, the supply chain is screwed up for just about everything, including builders. We're going to visit with a luxury home builder about the problems they're having getting their hands just on the materials to build homes. Next, here on AM 950 KPRC. Three eighteen, our time here on AM nine fifty KPRC. Um, earlier today, um, Jason Brinkman. You, you, you hear me talking about Brinkman Quality Roofing Services all the time. Um, I'm feeling was feeling a little nervous about my roof. By the way, I'm so glad I had him come out. He said your roof looks great. You probably got a good ten years left in this roof. Don't worry about your roof. Now there are a couple of little things like some you know around your uh, venting and it, that we probably should address. You know that with we you know some caulking and some sealant and. And, uh, you know, really, really minor stuff just to make sure you don't pop any leaks anywhere. But the shingles look great. So I'm glad I did that. I feel better. But, you know, he and I got into this conversation about how hard it is for him to get materials because he also does gutters. And anything involving steel is difficult right now. Metal roofing, really, really hard. Long waits to get metal roofing and very, very, very expensive. Even traditional asphalt shingles, limited selection of colors compared to what you normally can get. There's supply chain issues as it relates to building supplies, and it seems to be across the board for just about everything. So I thought, let's, let's, let's see if that is indeed the case. Let's check in with somebody who uses shingles and a whole lot more because he's building entire homes. Joji Koshi joins us with Atrium Fine Homes. Um, they're in North Texas. By the way, I went on your website and and looked up some of your homes. They are beautiful, sir. Beautiful. Thank you so much. So, how big of a problem is this for you to get your hands on the supplies you need to build these homes? You know, it's a little different for production builders versus custom builders, um, where production builders kind of use the same materials uh, routinely. In custom building, you know, we use more unique materials, so the roof on one home could, you know, be very different from another home. Uh, to answer your question, uh, so supply chain is definitely causing extended construction timing and uh, c- causing a lot of delays on the overall process. I remember for a while there, lumber was a big issue. You know, this past summer, we built a fence, and, and, and the people I was getting quotes from to build the fence, it was literally, well, this price is good for three days. And then I'll have to quote you again because we don't know what the price of the lumber is going to be three days from now. Are you seeing those types of wild price swings in some of the materials you're trying to get your hands on? 
Well, the good news is that we have seen an adjustment of the lumber pricing come back down. And I think that was mainly due to, you know, some sort of a intervention from the federal government and other pressures on um, the suppliers. And so I think there's been a, a better adjustment for lumber when it comes to uh, that material. But when it comes to other materials such as plastics, resin, electrical, copper, and other things, there's been substantial delays because there's only certain plants throughout the U.S. that make them, the raw materials for them, and then that's caused bottlenecks in, you know, other materials that we order. Okay. How much of the problem is, is I, I mean, there's so many different levels of issues where we've had ever since COVID. We have uh, plants where they've had uh, a number of COVID cases to the point where they've had to shut down production or limit production. We've had... Uh, We've had plants that switched over to build something else, at least temporarily, in some fields uh, related to COVID. We have a shortage, we know, of truck drivers out there. Where where are all the problems coming from? Is it just is it just the entire system that's kind of broken down right now? You know, I think no one in this world was probably prepared for the pandemic that we went through. I mean, in the last several decades, we haven't gone through something as substantial as this. So I think we were all caught off guard. Uh, but I think uh, it's affected every line of business from logistics all the way from uh, manufacturers, raw material producers. Uh, pretty much it's affected every every uh, silo of the manufacturing process. So I think that's how it's created such a um, gigantic issue within the entire supply chain. So if I were to come to you right now and say, Joji, I want to build this home, this this custom home, and, and, and we're going to build it from scratch, and we're going to make it just the way we want it. Um, what is the normal process for building a home? Is what, somewhere six, seven, eight months as far as the time it takes to build a custom home, or does it take longer than that? Yeah, actually, production homes are usually between six to ten months, um, depending on the size. Custom homes typically start around 12 months and range depending on the size. Some of our homes, you know, two to three homes a year, we do range anywhere from 20 to 30,000 square feet. And so those are usually a two to three year build process. Okay. And how much is it driven off the cost of building a home that big? I'm sorry, would you repeat? Yeah. How how much is it driven up the cost of building a home that big? Um, I would say overall, it could, it could be as low as, 12 to 15 percent but highest 25 to 30 percent that 25 to 30 percent and i'm guessing on a 20,000 square foot house i'm guessing we're talking multi-million dollar homes right that's correct and a yeah. lot of it's actually uh, in those type of homes where we're bringing in a lot of material from europe and other parts of the world and and just sheer containers shipping containers have gone up substantially and so shipping itself has created such a uh, pent-up uh, cost in, in, in what we're dealing with. Well, and not just the containers, trying to get them into a port and, and get them offloaded once once they do arrive, right? That's correct. Yeah. Wow. So what are you hearing about how long this is going to last? It sounds like it's wormed its way into so many different areas that it's going to take quite a while to unravel all this. Yeah, I think just like the pandemic has affected the entire world, I think this situation has affected all the industries. And so... I mean, you hear it from, you know, uh, the computer chip shortages in automobiles to the stuff that's driven in the home building and other construction arenas. When will this be resolved? I mean, I think this thing will take probably one to two, one to three years to flush itself out uh, of uh, so that we can all, you know, adjust to the new norms as well as 
uh, prepare for what happens if the next situation like this occurs. Wow. That's a long, long time. Did you ever dream when this all began and the the supply chain problems first started that you'd be looking at a process that was going to take this long? Definitely not a dream. (laughs) That's a nightmare, right? Yeah, um, right. But, you know, hopefully, like I said, I think if it's, you know, if we're all uh, working towards the same end goal, usually what happens is that gives us the ability to what gives us the ability to uh, move forward in a positive manner and try to work together. I'm guessing even even though your your, your clientele certainly, uh, you know, is, is in a, a price tag and a price point that most people are not in. I'm guessing it's never an easy phone call, is it, when you have to pick up the phone and call somebody and tell them, yeah, that price I quoted you for this, that, or the other, we're going to have to adjust that a little bit. I'm sure you you have those conversations all the time, and they're not easy no matter how much the client makes, are they? Yeah, the issue that we're seeing is actually that um, uh, the the driving of the factor of pricing is not just in small things, it's in, in multiple line items of the construction business. And so uh, that's a bad thing. But the good thing is that we're able to see that, you know, national, local media all covers this as, a, as an issue that needs to be addressed. So uh, at least the homeowners are aware of the issue. Um, wow, that's so good, yeah. that helps. That helps out. Okay. Hey, Joji, best of luck to you and your business, and thanks for joining me today. appreciate it. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Yep, take care. From Atrium Fine Homes, they're based in uh, North Texas. Do a lot of building in Dallas and the Hill Country. That's Joji Kashi joining us here on AM 950 KPRC. All right, quick little break. Uh, Coming up in a moment, have you heard heard about this this vote going on in the woodlands? I, I live just south of the woodlands. I'm not technically in the woodlands, so this vote will not have an impact on me, and I don't get a vote in this, but they're going to be voting to incorporate. Now... Why would the Woodlands want to incorporate? What does that mean to incorporate? What are they trying to avoid by incorporation? And uh, who are the players in all this? James Quintero has been following it for the Texas Public Policy Foundation. We'll talk to him next year on AM 950 KPRC. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, if you live or work in the woodlands, and I live just south of the woodlands, you might have seen some signs, rather large signs, about voting yes or voting no on a proposition they're going to put up for a vote here in the, I assume it's in November. I haven't even bothered to check it out because I don't get a vote in this. But the, the citizens of the woodlands, which right now is a township, it is not incorporated. And I guess one of the things that could eventually happen it is the same thing that could happen that happened to Kingwood, which is they could get annexed by the city of Houston. I'm guessing that's something they don't want to have happen. But right now, well, there's a lot of things about the woodlands that are, that are interesting. First of all, part of it is in Harris County, and part of it is in Montgomery County. So that's the first thing. And then, of course, you've got schools 
Some of them are woodland schools, and some people live in the woodlands also have kids that go to spring schools, and some of them have kids that go to, to Conroe Public. It, it's, it's a little confusing, to say the least. But right now, police and fire, they come from Harris County, for the most part, and from Montgomery County, I assume. And this is, this is something I would assume if they incorporated, they would have to fund and pay for themselves. So there's a lot of issues here. For any Texas town that wants to incorporate, joining us from the Texas Public Policy Foundation is James Quintero. He's kind of following this story. Yep. Tell, tell us what, what is, what is the, the purpose or what is the stated reason behind the Woodlands wanting to incorporate? Hey, Jamie. Great to be with you as always. Yeah, really interesting evolving issue happening down in the Woodlands where you effectively have a limited government structure in place that, you know, by all counts has been a huge success. And you have a few people who are pushing to transition to a traditional city model where I think there's going to be an invitation for all sorts of common problems that afflict uh, cities. And I'm talking about high taxes, lots of spending, massive debt, big bureaucracies. Um, And so you you have a few folks pushing in this direction, and uh, I think the public really needs to have this one on their radar because there is uh, potentially a lot at stake here. Sounds like it. Now, one of the things I mentioned at the opening of this is one of the reasons why you might want to consider incorporation is because you don't want to end up like Kingwood getting annexed by the city of Houston. Now, as I understand it, that's not possible right now. I forget what year it is that it would become possible for the Woodlands to be annexed by the city of Houston. It's, it's, it's down the road, quite a little ways down the road. But is that a consideration here as far as whether or not you incorporate to prevent being annexed by the city? Well, that's a great question. So that used to be a fairly common strategy. Uh, communities would frequently incorporate as sort of a defensive mechanism against larger cities um, because they wanted to protect against high taxes and excessive regulations. Now, what the legislature did in 2017 and then finished off and completed in 2019 is they ended involuntary annexation. And so that particular method of of city conscription really isn't in effect anymore. And so that's no longer, I I think, a suitable justification for something like this. Uh, Involuntary annexation is simply off the table. Okay. I get the impression from some of the talk I've heard that there may be a developer involved in all this do you know anything about that connection? About you know, there, There's not a lot of land left in the woodlands that isn't already developed, but I would, I would guess, like everything else, follow the money, right? It's follow the money trail. Who, who stands the gain the most by either incorporating or preventing incorporation? Well, that's a great question. I'm not, you know, I'm not sure on the the developer aspect, but I can tell you that, you know, based on on what I've observed, you have a few aspiring city bureaucrats who really want to consolidate power and have the ability to levy extra taxes on the population. In fact, I was just looking at some of the numbers here recently. It looks like if the city, if the community were to move forward with incorporation, you're talking about probably an extra $18 million in property taxes that would have to be levied to get the the community from point A to point B. That translates into an extra 8.5 cents per $100 of assessed value in additional taxes. 
And so, again, this really has to be uh, uh, elevated for the public to know and understand what's going on here because there are some potentially big consequences. Okay. So basically what we're talking about is political control versus higher taxes. In other words, which is which would you prefer? I'm sure there are decisions that the Woodlands does not make for itself now because they are a township that is made for them, whether they want it or not, by Harris County or maybe even Montgomery County, because like I said, the Woodlands is actually split kind of between two different counties. Um, so that would allow them to make their own future political decisions without interference from the counties. I guess there's something to be said for that. But you're also talking about setting up a structure with where I would guess you would have to have some sort of a city council. You would have to, I don't know if you have a mayor or not, or if you have a strong mayor or strong city council. So you'd have to decide what form of government you want to do. I would assume that you would also, would you not have to take over some of your own city services that are currently provided by the county? Absolutely. You'd have to build a lot of these institutions from the ground up. And I think when you look at the the township figures that they're putting forward, it tends to understate the amount of money that's going to be required in order to get off the ground. In fact, I was just looking at uh, uh, another study from a, a third-party group that suggested that the cost of establishing a Woodlands Police Department was understated by the township to the order on the magnitude of something around 12 to 14 million dollars. And again, that's just to establish it. That's not accounting for any of the costs in future years related to maintenance, salary increases, benefit enhancements, all the rest that come along with it. And so, you know, this is one of those ones that, that I think has the potential to cost folks a lot more than we even realize at the moment. You know, I've always, you know, I've only lived here in Texas for the last, you know, just started my fifth year. Um, I'm still trying, just just as Virginia was different than Michigan was, Texas is different than Virginia and Michigan were as far as how government is set up. It's it's an interesting sort of conglomeration, especially as it relates to cities. We have a lot of places that have names, but they aren't really a place. <laughs> in other words, you live in like, I live, you know, technically I live just a mile and a half south of the woodlands and a mile and a half east of Tomball, at least where they start calling it Tomball as far as your name and your zip code, and I'm in Spring. Well, I, I am I am further away from I'm I am so much further away from Spring than I am from either the Woodlands or from Tomball. Somehow it just doesn't quite make sense all the time, does it? No, it doesn't. And in fact, you know, this was that was one of the points that was brought up during the annexation fight, as you had these large cities that were gobbling up people and land in really far outstretched places, to the point where the folks who were getting involuntarily annexed would have to travel, you know, an hour just to get to city hall to to petition their city leaders. And so, I mean, the situation was getting out of control from that aspect, which is another reason why the legislature ended the practice. Well, give me a little education here. When when Kingwood was annexed by Houston, how did life change in Kingwood? Well, great question. So I, I want to say that occurred in the late 90s. Um, and, and what ended up happening is the city of Houston kind of uh, annexed all along the highway. 
And, and as they did so, they extended uh, their uh, power and control of the area, and they basically gobbled up Kingwood, which was an established community. And by doing so, there were certain fiscal benefits that the city accrued, right? I mean, they had an established community that was uh, fairly affluent, which meant lots of tax money. And, and what it meant for Kingwood residents is that they had to pay higher taxes. Uh, I believe, uh, if, if memory recalls, their tax bills went up overnight, something on the order of 15 to 20 percent. They also became subject to all sorts of additional city regulations. And perhaps worst of all, by being involuntarily annexed by the city, they became liable for all of the city's debts that had been accrued prior to uh, prior to to their capture and so there's all sorts of consequences that came along with that annexation. Uh, my hope is that moving forward, once we get out of kind of the, the current uh, pandemic environment, the legislature will shift gears now that it's ended involuntary annexation and look to things like disannexation reform. We want to be able to give people the ability to uh, leave a city if they so choose. And I, and I hope my friends in Kingwood will uh, join me as, as we look forward to the 2023 session well there's there, there's some places right in the heart of houston that technically are are separate entities um you know south U is one of those areas that i think given the opportunity to completely separate themselves from the city of houston they would do it in a new york minute <laughs> i think you're right jimmy <laughs> good to talk to you as always james thanks i was going to ask you if you could come up with one thing that kingwood got as a benefit from being annexed by the city of Houston, but I didn't want you to have to work that hard. I think I think your brain probably would <laughs> your brain would have started smoking or something. I I, I would still be stumped on that one. Yeah, <laughs> I I'll bet you would. One thing. <laughs> Thank you, friend. Good to talk to you. Take care. Thank you. From the Texas Public Policy Foundation, James Quintero. All right, quick little break. Final segment for hour number one coming up next. Stick around, Jimmy Baird Show here on AM nine fifty KPRC. Um, we haven't spent any time yet today. <laughs> By the way, I've got some great audio for next hour. I, I love, absolutely love that exchange between uh, Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson and uh, Alejandro Mayorkas, HHS Secretary, regarding the border. <laughs> he just ate him for lunch. He just ate him for lunch. That's part of that. That's part of the job. You know, if you if you take a job in government, if you're working for I don't care who the president is. You just assume, right, that if you're a secretary, if you're part of the cabinet, you're going to go in front of Congress at some point, and you're going to have to explain stuff that you have no good logical explanation for, and you're going to have to tap dance, and you're going to get the crap beat out of you, and then you're just going to have to, you're going to have to, you have to take it, and then you're going to have to go back, and like I said, it's I guess it's therapeutic if you're a member of Congress, um, not so therapeutic if you were the person that's being grilled, but at the end of the day, I guess you realize that nothing's going to happen to you because nothing ever happens. Congress never does anything, right? I mean, it's not like they're going to say, you're fired. Can't fire those people. No, you can't get rid of them. All you can do is, try, I guess, maybe this is why they, they, they go about doing things the way they do. The only thing you could do, I guess, is to be mean enough and vicious enough and nasty enough that you make them want to resign. 
You make them quit. You know, same, same. I guess the same way you have to handle some employees, right? You, you make their lives so miserable that they want to quit. Because if you can't fire them for whatever reason, then you got to make them quit. All right, so who, who's been getting grilled this week? It wasn't just the Mayorkas getting grilled. Um, the vice president of Facebook, I forget his name, uh, but the vice president of, of Facebook was testifying in front of uh, one of the Senate committees. Senator Josh Hawley is a member of that committee. And um, I actually think I might disagree, at least with one point, uh, that you'll hear from Senator Hawley. He wants to know, he's demanding to know, because he's hearing all these stories about teen girls getting shamed on, uh, I forget which platform it is, they talk about it during the cut, and, and, and Facebook executives not doing anything about it. Here's that exchange. Are teenagers safe on any of your platforms? Senator, we're working really hard to make that the case. So they're not now? Senator, I, I, we, we are investing a lot in safety and integrity across all of our platforms. We've invested billions of dollars and are you concerned, though, that, that teenagers are, are currently subject to all kinds of uh, potential predators, the social effects? I mean, you're saying you hope that they'll be safe on the platforms. Do, are they not safe now? Senator, I, I think it's our responsibility to invest the, the resources that we need to, to, to make sure that these things don't happen. You know, that's why we're investing billions of dollars in protecting the integrity of our platforms. By these things, do you mean things like this? Let me read you a few quotes. 32% of teen girls said that when they felt bad about their bodies, Instagram made them feel worse. Quote, we make body image issues worse for one in three girls, end quote. New quote, teams blame Instagram for increases in the rate of anxiety and depression. This reaction was unprompted and consistent across all groups. Or how about this? Teens who struggle with mental health say that Instagram makes it worse. Or how about this? Social comparison is worse on Instagram. Or how about this? Don't be on Instagram. See, that's that's where I part company. I understand, and it and it has a lot to. I understand. I understand why Josh Hawley is saying what he's saying. Part of it has to do with what he sees conservatives going through as it relates to social media. You know, having information blocked, getting banned, getting suspended. You know, you're you're trying to share information that you think is factual or worthy of sharing with your friends on Facebook or whatever about whether you're talking about COVID-19 or whatever it is you want to talk about, and they shut you down, and they turn you off, and they throw you in jail, their version of jail, and we're tired of it. We're angry about it. So, you know, when you find out that there are teen girls on Instagram who are feeling devalued and body shamed and all these other things or having mental health issues because of their usage of Instagram, then you feel compelled to lash out at these executives that own these social media platforms and say, why aren't you doing something about it? Well, we're spending lots of money. Okay, great. You're spending lots of money. To what, censor people? Probably. Because that seems to be the way they deal with it. So now, you know, they'll add an algorithm to Instagram that it, if it sees the word fat, it deletes whatever's posted. Something like that. Fat, overweight, obese, um, chubby, what, whatever whatever terms they want to come up with. That's, that's what will happen. That's the only way they really have to edit it. What I, what I never hear anymore 
even for most conservatives, is they never hear the personal responsibility. What about parents who know what their teenagers are doing? What about parents who realize that they have maybe a teenage girl that is, you know, does, is maybe has some mental health issues and shouldn't be on Instagram or any other social media? Whatever happened to, to a parent who just said no and monitored what their child is doing? Isn't that who should be handling this? You got a teen girl going on Instagram or any other social media platform and and they feel devalued as a result it's 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 ruined it's messing with their lives step in unfortunately we've made such a big deal out of things like social influencers you know kids look at things like social media as an opportunity to be famous or to make lots of money the easy way. Well, how many people actually, of the millions upon millions upon millions of people who use social media, how many are actually doing that? How many are actually making that kind of money? How many actually elevate themselves to being a social influencer? Is it really that important? I, I, guess, I guess for some of, some of our kids it is. You know, there's all kinds of ways become rich and famous. I don't happen to think being famous is that important in life. I don't think being filthy rich is that important in life either. I mean, unlike most other people, I think I'd like to be comfortable. I'd like to know I can provide for my family. But if the way I got to go about doing it is by doing something that causes misery to myself or my family, then I, I think I'm going to have to reconsider that, right? And I would hope that parents would reconsider, you know, what, what their kids are doing. I mean, if you have a kid who, who's participating in the TikTok challenge and stealing toilets out of the school because they think it's cool to take a picture of it and every, hey, I'll go viral. People will all look at this. Why is that so, why has that become so important to us? Did everybody look at what you're doing? Is it really that important? never been that important to me. I, don't, I doubt if it's been that important to you. So why is it that important to so many kids? Now why, why are they craving that kind of attention? Where are they lacking attention that they crave attention that much? All right, we've got Fox News next at 4, hour number 2 right around the corner. Stick around. Jimmy Barrett Show here on AM 950 KPRC. Is more common sense. More common sense. You got to use plain old common sense. Breaking down the world's nonsense. About how American common sense will see us through. With the common sense of Houston. I'm just pro common sense. For Houston, from Houston. Where is talking about common sense? This is the Jimmy Barrett Show, brought to you by ViewIn.com. Now here's Jimmy Barrett. Okay, what I'm going to say in this opening segment is not going to be popular. It might be, to some people, it might even be a little offensive, and I don't mean to be offensive. I just want to point something out. And it's it's obvious. If we think about it, we all know this happens. What I don't know, well, I have my, I, I can share, I have theories as to why this is. Um, I wish it weren't that way. But okay, here we go. 
Have you heard, and we have not talked about this at all on the show, the disappearance of a young lady by the name of Gabby Petito. Pretty, young, blonde girl who went on a cross-country trip with her boyfriend. His name is Brian Laundrie. Went on a trip. He comes back from the trip, and she's not with him. So what's happened to her? You already know the answer to this, right? Well, first of all, if you've been following the case at all, you know the answer. You know, they're still trying to find him because he took off. We get these daily updates on where they're searching for this Brian Laundry and how they found her body in the Grand Tetons. And it's like nonstop coverage every day. We have a name for this, those of us who have been connected to, to, to news and journalism in some way, shape, or form for as many years as, as I have anyway. And forgive me if anybody finds this offensive, but we call it pretty white girl syndrome. The media is obsessed with stories like this. And I hate to say it, but if it were a black girl in the city, downtown goes disappearing from downtown Houston, it'll get some local coverage, but it would never, ever, ever get national coverage under the same circumstances. If it were a Hispanic girl from New Mexico, it, would, it wouldn't get any coverage. It, they'd get local coverage, of course, but it wouldn't get national coverage the way this story is. The stories that, that get national coverage that involve these types of situations are always these pretty blonde girls. Now, I'm not saying it because I think it's about racism. In fact, here's my theory. It's got nothing to do with racism because it's true. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's a conservative news outlet. It doesn't matter if it's a liberal news outlet. They're all the same as it relates to covering these kinds of stories. It's because it is, at least in their minds, unique. It doesn't happen every day. It's like murder in a little rural small town in the middle of nowhere is a bigger story than somebody being killed in the city of Houston. And it's because it's unique or unusual. It's happening to somebody or somewhere that you don't normally hear it happening to. That's what makes it different. But the coverage is over the top, I believe anyway. Completely over the top as it relates to this Gabby Petito. Look, look at it this way. Here's what's so sad about it. And this is where, this is where, I, I, this is where my paternal instincts kick in. By all reports, the warning signs that something like this could happen were probably there. She's dating a guy who has a has a has a hair 
hair, hair, hairpin trigger. I mean, he can go off, he, and he does go off. When they argue, they argue really loud. They're clearly not that good for each other. And yet the relationship continues. Don't know why. Don't know why. Never have understood why women stay with guys who can be abusive. Now, I'm not saying this guy beat her. But I'm guessing there's at least psychological abuse involved in all this. And for whatever reason, when these things happen, either she says, that's it, I've had enough, I want to break up. Or whatever the story is, something set this guy off. It's pretty clear that he killed her. Why he killed her, we don't know. But I can assure you all the warning signs were there, because they, they're always there, if anybody would care to look at them. I don't know what kind of relationship she has with her parents. I don't know what kind of relationship he had with his parents. But if his parents were honest, they probably realized that their son had a, had a problem and should have probably done something to try to intervene. And if her parents are honest, they probably realize that she's with a guy who she probably shouldn't be with who might be a problem sometime. Not to say that you sit down with these kids and you're capable of, of talking them out of whatever it is that they're doing. But I sometimes think his parents were not quite aggressive enough when it comes to warning our kids about things that we can see that they just can't. I'm, I'm sure the only thing worse for Gabby Petito's parents, the only thing worse than what has happened to their daughter is to know that this thing is playing nationally every single day. Every talking news head is talking about it. Every television station is reporting on it. Every newspaper, every magazine is reporting on it. And it's even gotten to the point where I'm talking about it. But I, I'm not talking about it because I'm fascinated by a pretty, another pretty white girl that got killed. I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated that the media finds it so fascinating that that's, that that's worthy of national coverage on a grand scale. Only when it's a pretty young white girl. All right, back with more in a moment. Jimmy Barrett Show, AM 950 KPRC. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I like the grill. Do you like the grill? I love the grill. I love grilling steaks. I love grilling burgers. Uh, I love I love grilling vegetables. You know, vegetables are better on the grill. Uh, I, 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 I love grilling politicians. No, wait a minute. That's I don't grill politicians really. Uh, other. When it comes to grilling politicians, nobody grills a politician harder than another politician. <laughs> Especially as it relates to what's going on at the border. 
And, of course, you know, we're a little sensitive to what's going on in the border. By the way, I saw a picture today. Where did I see that? Um, you know, we, we, we shared some audio from Governor Abbott yesterday on the show talking about how they took uh, DPS vehicles and were lining them up as sort of a, 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 a pseudo-border fence. And the governor said it was working as far as deterring illegals from crossing those points. So I said, there was like a, um, probably taken from a helicopter photograph of all these DPS vehicles lined up. And I'm thinking to myself, good God, how many are there? There had to be hundreds of them. And I'm thinking, what is that costing us? How, what's the state budget for DPS vehicles? Must be rather, rather stiff. And how do we have so many that they can just take in there and they can just park them? Does somebody need to be driving those things? Anyway, uh, politicians grilling other politicians. Senator Ron Johnson, Republican from Wisconsin, had Alejandro Mayorkas, uh, Secretary of Health and Human Ser- Services, in, in front of his committee yesterday. And they're talking about the border. And he basically starts by getting into it with Mayorkas by pointing out to the secretary that the secretary has been telling us the border is closed. The border is closed. That's a lie. The border's not closed. Yet, Secretary Mayorkas continues to insist it is. Here's a little bit of that exchange. You have repeatedly stated that our borders are not open, that they're closed. Do you honestly believe that our borders are closed? Um, Senator, uh, I do. And um, let me um, uh, let me speak uh, to that. We have- now l- l- let me ask you a couple questions here. Um, we re- this committee received it was dated September 11th, but apparently this letter was not received till Thursday. I didn't find out about it till yesterday. I, I released it to the public immediately. By recently retired U.S. Border Patrol Chief Rodney Scott. Uh, in this letter. Former Chief Scott states, he is sickened by the avoidable and rapid disintegration of what was arguably the most effective border security in our nation's history. And of course, the chart shows it. Uh, We'd pretty well secured the border. We'd stopped the flow of unaccompanied children. We'd stopped the flow of family units because of the migrant protection protocols, the agreements that uh, President Trump put in place, the, the building of the wall. We were serious about border security until your administration took office. You stood before this committee and said that you would enforce the laws. You have not done that. Well, that's pretty good grilling. And um, as is usually the case when you're getting grilled, you don't get much of a chance to answer questions. Then again, when you claim you don't have the information, that you would think the Secretary of Health and Human Services would have right on the tip of his tongue, that generally is not going to go real well. Here he is once again, Senator Ron Johnson, quizzing... Uh, Alejandro Mayorkas on how many people we have gotten at the border, how many we've deported, how many have been dispersed. Take a listen to this. So let me ask you, Mr. Secretary, of the 1.3 million people that we've apprehended, how many people have been returned, how many people are being detained, and how many people have been dispersed? And I want some numbers here. So we've got, again, 1.3 million people, How many people have been returned? How many people are being detained? How many people have been dispersed to all points around America? Uh, Senator, I would be pleased to provide you with that data. I want them now. 
Why don't you have that information now? Uh, Senator, I do not have that data. Why not? Me. Why don't you have that basic information? Senator, I want to be accurate in the, in the information. I'm looking for ballpark figures. Is it about half? Have we dispersed about half of that? Are we up to about 600,000 people we dispersed? Senator, these are the tools that we employ. Uh, we use the Title 42 authority, that is the public health authority, empowered by the Centers for Disease Control to expel individuals in light of the... So, so I'm hearing that you're not using that to the full extent and that we've got 40-50% of people, even apprehended under, under Title 42, that are not being returned. Is that accurate? That, that, is, that is actually inaccurate. Okay, we, so what, what is the... Okay, so you, if you're saying that's Senator, inaccurate... Senator, would you care to let the, the witness finish an answer? Well, the problem is the witness won't answer. He won't give any specific figures. I mean, what, what Senator Johnson is asking... He is not out of line. You know, we know what we're hearing about how many people have come to the border. Here's our question. Of the people who come to the border, how many have been deported? Ballpark. He's not even asking. I'm not asking for 1,273, you know, 1,200, 1,500 people, something like that. He's, He's asking for a ballpark. He knows the answer. You know he knows the answer. Or he's incompetent. And I'm not buying the incompetency part because everything that's happening at the border is on purpose. It's completely on purpose. He knows the answer. So what's the answer? Well, he knows. He knows what happens if he gives the answer because the answer is not good. Because here's what we do know. Yes, we've got, we've got a bunch of Afghan men that have been getting on plane in San Antonio. What we don't know is how many of those planes are actually going to Haiti? One? Two? All three? None? Of these plane loads of single Haitian men who've been rounded up using Article 42, how many of them are actually being deported? Okay? And how many of them, as we're hearing, are actually being dispersed to other parts of the country because that is that's the hallmark of what this administration has been doing with the illegals is they you know when they when they have a a, a bad scene going on like they do now where you've got 10 15,000 people under a bridge in Del Rio Texas and you are getting crucified over it the only thing you want to do is to make that go away you're not going to change your program. You're not interested really in deportation. You're interested in bringing even more people into the country. So what do we do? Well, you get them away from the border. You fly them somewhere else. Fly them into the middle of the country. Fly them way up north. Fly them somewhere else where the media is not, is not looking at it because they're getting criticized even by the most liberal media over what's going on at the border. you got to make that go away. And that's what they're doing. Well, they're trying to. But if they were to answer Senator Johnson's question honestly, which he could if he wanted to, then he'd be telling you exactly what he's doing. And he doesn't want you to know that. All right, quick break. Back with more in a moment. Jimmy Baird Show, AM 950 KPRC. Thirty-two is the time here on AM nine fifty KPRC. 
All right. I'm having fun with the press conference stuff, so uh, I hope you'll indulge me a little bit more. That uh, I'm glad to see the border is getting so much attention. I'm, I'm just wondering what is going to happen to drive it off the front page. I think I think uh, the administration, Biden administration, is very nervous about how much play it's getting. So, so I kind of wonder. Well, how how what are they going to come up with? What what kind of a crisis are we going to have to be dealt here to get our mind off the border? Uh, because, like I said, the border's getting a lot of play. It always gets a lot of play here because we're on the border. You know, it's getting a lot of play in Arizona. It's getting a lot of play in California, even to a certain extent. The, the border, New Mexico, the border states, uh, less in New Mexico because they have a liberal Democrat governor. Arkansas, 26 states, 26 governors now from 26 states have... Um, and, and I'll, uh, maybe if, if time permits, I'll share some audio with, with you with them. But they have, they have basically signed a pact demanding a meeting with President Biden. All 26 of them say, we'll go to Washington, D.C., day and time of your convenience. We want to meet you, and we want to talk to you about what's going on at the border. I don't imagine that they'll get a response from this administration. I wouldn't think so. But certainly, uh, Jen Psaki's day... Every day, his press secretary is uh, filled up with questions about the border. Here is to, and, and forgive me, both of these cuts are rather long, but I, I, I find them very good. I think you'll you'll enjoy them, or at least you'll enjoy the information you get from them. Here is uh, Fox's Peter Ducey grilling Jen Psaki today. Thank you, Jen. Just following up on this very basic but very important question, mm -hmm. you're telling us that the DHS chief has the most recent numbers about how many of these Haitians under the bridge have been sent back and how many have been released into the U.S. The DHS chief is telling us that he doesn't know. So who else can we ask? You can certainly ask the Department of Homeland Security. I am confident, Peter. I am confident he wanted to have the most up-to-date numbers, and we will venture to get you those, I promise you, this afternoon. Is this an issue of not knowing, or is this an issue of a lot more people are being released into the U.S. than are being sent out? That is certainly not the issue. First, I think it's important to reiterate what I conveyed earlier about uh, what the actual process is. Uh, individuals are expelled under Title 42. If they can't be expelled under Title 42, they are put into a removal process. If they are put into a removal process, they're either transported to an ICE facility or released with a legal document. That legal document includes fingerprints, photos, phone numbers, an address in the United States, and a background check. That's the process that transpires. That's a part of our immigration process, regardless of where you're coming from. And just because you keep using Title 42, to defend this administration's immigration policies, that is a Trump-era regulation. You guys came in saying that the Trump-era immigration policy was very inhumane. Title 42 is not an immigration policy. It is, a, it is a health authority because we're in the middle of a pandemic. The Trump administration approach to immigration was inhumane and was immoral. That's why we need to put a new policy in place and we need Congress to pass that policy. Unified control, democratic control of Congress. Many months in office, you have not even tried. Uh, that's not actually true. Well, there's been a, Peter, just to, just factual here. There's okay. been there's been a bill proposed first day in office. Currently, it was proposed as a part of steps were proposed as part of the reconciliation process. 
Right. The parliamentarian rejected that proposal. They're going back and proposing new options. President supports that. He would like to see immigration reform pass into law, more humane processes. Just one more. Has President Biden ever been to the southern border? In his life? Yes. I will have to get look back in my history books and check the we, times he's been to the southern we border. We have been looking all morning, and we cannot find any record of him visiting the border as president, vice president, senator, or even as a concerned citizen. Why would that be? I can check and see when the last time or when he may have been. But, but tell me more about why you're asking. Because this is a president who makes a point when there are disasters in this country, like a wildfire or a hurricane, to go and see for himself firsthand what the needs are of the local community so that he can have an informed POV to make policy. Why doesn't he do that? Uh, why doesn't he go down to Del Rio, Texas and see what's going on? Well, first of all, Peter, I think the situation at the border is the result of a broken system. And the president certainly relies on his experience. So whether it was the work he did to address root causes as vice president, his efforts when he was in the Senate to support comprehensive immigration reform, a steps that at a time were done, being done and worked toward in a bipartisan way, something that uh, certainly we think should be the, the case today. He uses all of his experiences to inform how he governs, how he approaches challenges. And certainly he looks again at the last four years and the, the separation of children who are ripped from the arms of their parents as a way he does not want to proceed. So all of his experiences and his time in office, whether vice president or Senate, uh, inform his approach to issues. I have to give the devil their dues on this one to both of them. Peter Ducey, when he goes into a press conference, he goes in very well prepared. He doesn't just ask questions. He already knows the real answer to the question before he asks it and he points that out that aside give the devil her due as well Jen Psaki is so good at circling around a question you you really I've yet to see her thoroughly pinned into a corner despite the best efforts of people like Peter Ducey to pin her into a corner to force her to to force her to be truthful. She is a very good liar. She really, I mean, it's a, I guess it's a talent, right, to be that good of a liar. She really is a very good liar, and she can circle around like nobody's business. She refuses to be caught in the corner and caged. That's quite an interesting exchange. At least I found it that way. I hope you did, too. Now, somebody I, I, I usually find a, a bit infuriating at these press conferences is April Ryan. Do you know who April Ryan is? This is a very long cut. I apologize. We didn't have time to edit this down to something shorter. But April Ryan, um, she's White House correspondent for the Griot. Um, she's also has served as White House correspondent and Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief for American Urban Radio Networks. In 2017, she joined CNN as a political analyst. She is she is a journalist who's highly opinionated. Uh, she's a journalist who rather frequently um, brings race into into her questioning, whether or not it should be there or not. It kind of makes an appearance here because what she really wants to talk about with Jen Psaki is this whole thing with Border Patrol and how they're he how they're treating the Haitians. Here's that exchange. 
Jen, um, I, just bear with me because there are a lot of moving parts on this sure. issue. Um, members of the Congressional Black Caucus were here today meeting with uh, the national security team, Cedric Richmond and Susan Rice. Yep. Can you give us an update? Because they were talking about Haiti, mm -hmm. the immigration issue at the border. Um, could you give us an update on that and what is expected for tomorrow's meeting with civil rights leaders, be it teleconference or what have you with White House officials? Just so I, what do you mean by an update exactly? An update on Can what happened in the what meeting? happened in the meeting? What was given to them? What did they ask for? Because black leaders are making big asks of this crisis moment. What, tell me more about what you think they're asking for. Okay, what they're asking for, the asylum process, what does that look like? Reverend Al Sharpton is going to the border tomorrow mm -hmm. to see what that looks like, if people are actually being able to get asylum who's here. Also, the, you talked about the condemnation of what um, the patrol agents were doing with the reins or whip, whatever, with the intent to lash, to hurt people, to keep them away from the border. They want to know, is that practice going to still be in place? Courses and the lashing, those kind of issues. So, so I, I just wanted to have clarity on exactly what you were asking about, April. That's it. On the second piece, there is an, ex, uh, there is an investigation that is ongoing that the Secretary of Homeland Security has made clear he wants to happen quickly, and he wants the outcome to be done by next week. Once that process is concluded, that will be a deter that will help be a determinant in any policy decisions and personnel decisions both all important questions i'm sure that was what was conveyed as well on the first part i think what in the answer i gave uh, just a few minutes ago here uh, i think what what we are conveying to anyone who are our partners, whether they are civil rights leaders, members of the CBC, and others who have uh, important questions here, is how uh, outraged we also are by these photos and this video, our commitment to this investigation, but also how our immigration processing system works. And in response to Amr's question before, what I tried to lay out is, is what happens, right? No matter where you are coming from, if you are irregularly migrating, we are still applying Title 42 because we are in the middle of a public health crisis. This is what is conveyed to anyone who has questions. Uh, those individuals who are eligible uh, to stay in the United States through, through a range of our programs, that they would be allowed to stay in the United States through a range of our programs. If they are, uh, there are some who are placed into removal processes where they also can make the case, whether it's fear or fear of returning back to countries, et cetera, they will go through the process as well. So I'm sure what they are doing is explaining exactly what our immigration processes are and reiterating as well um, our outrage at the photos and the video. But, but um, I, so bear with me because this is. Okay, that's pieces. good on that. That's, that's probably long enough. Go ahead and cut that off, Will. Um, like I said, you know, we talked about the picture yesterday. That picture is not of somebody being beaten with the reins of the horse or, or, or a rope or a whip. Why do they keep talking about whips? Because they're trying to build an image here, they're trying to portray Border Patrol as a bunch of racists who are treating Haitians like slaves. That, that's the image they're trying to portray with all this. Back with more in a moment, Jimmy Baird Show, AM 950 KTRC. All right, last segment coming up, a little more business to take care of here. I, I mentioned a little bit earlier in the show that we have 26 governors, obviously all Republican governors, who have signed on to a we want a meeting with you, Joe Biden, and we want it now uh, type of letter, I guess. I assume, do they still, 
Do they send an email? Do they send a, do they send a telegram? <laughs> does anybody does anybody ever send a telegram anymore? Do you do you remember telegrams? Right now, I think Will's eyes are glazing over back at the station. What the hell's a telegram? Back in the day, that's how you used to send things to people, like you know, like like messages across the country of something really important. You'd send a telegram. Um. I remember sending a telegram way back in the beginning of my career to thank a program director for interviewing me for a job because I thought, well, that's unusual. That Nobody would ever do that. Somebody might make a thank you phone call or somebody might send a little thank you note, but nobody would ever send a telegram. I don't know that it ever worked. Telegrams are, yo, know, yesterday's news, obviously. So I don't know how, how they communicate this to the White House um, but my chan- chances are, regardless of how they send it, it's going to be universally ignored because Biden has no desire to meet with any of these governors. He, some of them, some of whom he honestly, I believe, hates, including Governor Abbott and Governor Ron DeSantis. We'll get to him in just a second. But uh, Governor um, Asa Hutchinson, the governor of Arkansas, uh, was on Fox earlier today talking a little bit about the letter and talking about his support for the Border Patrol. Well, the Border Patrol is what is standing and supporting our national security. We need to support our Border Patrol. They're doing uh, an amazing job with difficult challenges. Uh, As the Congressman said, if there's any issue, it can be reviewed. But by and large, they have a very, very difficult job. Let me uh, uh, emphasize a couple points. Uh, First of all, uh, this all started, as uh, Governor Ducey said, because there's a change of policy in the Biden administration. Secondly, the wrong signal was sent uh, to our uh, counterparts across the globe that we have an open border. And this is the result of it that is a border in chaos. The only way you can reverse that, and I think the Biden administration sees the need to do it, is that you've got to change policy, but even more significantly, you've got to put federal resources there that sends the signal that we're serious about protecting the border. These are not complicated steps. These need to be done. The fact that 26 governors have signed that letter is a strong signal that uh, this is a miss and that's really adversely impacting all of our states. Yeah, but he doesn't care. That's the basic problem, Governor. He doesn't care how it's affecting your state. You're, you're a Republican state. He, he doesn't care. All right, here's uh, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp. Well, here's we have over 200 Georgia National Guard troops down there now. They have been for a long time, and I visited them back at the end of the Trump administration. And what's happening now and what's happened uh, just several months ago in McAllen, Texas, drastically different because the policies have changed. The messaging, mm-hmm. messaging has changed from the Biden administration, and they need to act. I mean, we're glad to send more troops. But the question to me, as I heard the, the tape earlier about the apprehensions, what about the people that aren't being apprehended? How many people are coming across undetected? It's the governors that are going to have to deal with those individuals. Yeah, like I said, though, Governor Kemp, like I told Governor Hutchison, he don't care. He's not going to meet with you. He don't care. And you're a Republican state. He hopes you're adversely affected. Yeah, he doesn't care much for Republicans or Republican states. A fact, by the way, that is not lost. Let's go ahead and skip one and go down to, uh, as long as we're on the same topic here, go down to 
Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis understands um, he's you know, because he he thinks the reason why, and I think he's right. And we're going through the same thing in Texas, by the way. He hates Texas every bit as much as he hates Florida. They don't want us to have these these antibodies uh, for treatment of of COVID nineteen. That's why they want to put it under federal control. That's why our states are having to go to um to to the to the uh, the the big pharma directly to try to get it directly from them. And and Ron DeSantis understands this is a president who hates his state. The Biden administration has dramatically cut the share of Imanic. First of all, they seized control of the supply nationwide, and now they're dramatically cutting uh, what's coming to the state of Florida. That's wrong. That is dead wrong. And why are they targeting Florida? Biden, he loves talking about Florida. He hates Florida more than anything, and this is absolutely going to hurt people. We're going to work like hell to make sure that, that anyone who needs it, we're going to figure out ways to be able to do. I hope to have an announcement on that soon. Um, but how could you cut it uh, given all the things that we're seeing on the ground? And you don't even need, you can look at the hospital data. It's very compelling. Just talk to people that have gotten this treatment. Talk to them about how they were feeling, where they feared this was going to end up, and then what happened after they were able to get, to get the treatment. It's been something that's benefited thousands and thousands and thousands of Floridians. They say there's no supply problem, but they're doing this anyway for temporal equity. I think it's because they fear a similar wave happening in some of these other parts of the, of the country later on in the year. But if they're not, if they don't have enough of it, then that's mismanagement on their part. Well, they also fear your success, sir, because if you're successful at treating people this way, then you prove the whole vaccine thing wrong, and they don't want that. They don't want that. And speaking of one more big lie, hospital figures, um, Dr. Bhattachara, he is a um, uh, he holds a PhD. He's a, he has a doctorate. He he's a professor at Stanford University. He's a medical expert. He says. The COVID numbers have been falsified. Yeah, so actually this is a result that goes back a ways. There's, there was an audit in Santa Clara County and in Alameda County of death certificates, for instance, and found that uh, in 25% of cases that were, that were coded as COVID deaths, actually 25% of the time there were other factors that were probably more important in those deaths than COVID. Uh, COVID uh, in hospitals have a ver- have had a very strong incentive to uh, diagnose COVID. Going back to the CARES Act last year, uh, some hospitals got more than $50,000 additional per COVID patient that they had. Um, oh. and so it's, it's, so there's a mix of things going on here, but I think there's a really important public health point here, which is that these cases have been used to scare the public scare the public into thinking that we're running out of, of, of hospital resources or healthcare resources, scare the public into thinking that COVID uh, is more dangerous than it is. It is dangerous, especially for an older vulnerable population, uh, as, we, as uh, we've talked about many times. Um, but it's not, it's not, it's not three, 3% mortality like we heard in the early days of the epidemic. It's much closer to 0.2% infection fatality rate, unless again, unless you're older, in which case it's much higher. 0.2%. Not about like the flu, the normal flu. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. You know, we're suckers. Isn't this amazing how many people have been suckered into believing all this stuff about death numbers and the need for hospitalization? 
Yep, you got to do research on this stuff. Tell your friends, the people they're running, driving in their car by themselves with a mask, ask them to do some research. Have a great evening. See you tomorrow morning, bright and early at 5, back here at 3 on AM 950 KPRC. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.